2: and get 10% off your plan.
1: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast. We talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, as in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? I'm doing well, David. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us and... Also back this week, we've got Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering technology for Adweek. How are you, Lauren?
3: I'm well. How are you?
1: I'm good. And also back, Chris Ahrens, our TV and media editor. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Well, this week on the podcast, we have got a lot to talk about. We've got a few stories about Facebook and how they're managing different uh, kinds of criticism in different ways and what they're doing to address some of that. We're going to talk about Pandora launching their uh, Spotify competitor, an on-demand streaming service. Uh, We're going to talk about legal weed and whether it's hurting uh, alcohol sales. Uh, And uh, one of my favorite uh, marketing stunts of the year, we're going to talk about how Burger King is trying to hack the Google Home to make it Uh, sell you hamburgers. Uh, But first, the news. All right. Uh, Facebook had uh, several different issues they were addressing this week, some uh, darker than others. I want to start with one of the heavier ones. We had a uh, a murderer in uh, Cleveland live-streamed a killing uh, on Facebook, and uh, it started some debate about uh, this... uh, this tactic, which we've seen a few times, there have been a few different uh, killings, beatings, uh, all sorts of horrible acts that have been put up on on Facebook. The question this time around was basically, what can Facebook do to limit their role in these kinds of things? Uh, in the end, it took about, I want to say, Lauren, correct me if I'm wrong, about an hour and a half for Facebook to address this. Uh, now... Most of that time, though, it was about two hours, but most of that time was just waiting for someone to report it. So the video was live in in a story that Marty Swant, our colleague, wrote. Uh, He basically had Facebook's timeline of what happened. It was about an hour and a half before someone reported the video. And then it took them 23 minutes to basically disable the page, turn off the video, get rid of all that. Facebook says they're still addressing how they handle those kinds of flagged content uh, Lauren, do you think there's much they can do about this, though? I mean, you can't really automatically filter out horrible things people do and then upload or live stream on Facebook.
3: It's very similar to what uh, YouTube has been facing criticism for, too, around around brand safety. And to some extent, you can use technology to try to filter out tags and to somewhat go through this, these kinds of offensive content uh, somewhat quickly, but you know, you do still need a human to to vet some of this stuff. And so it's a lot of work and kind of unclear how feasible it is for either Facebook or YouTube to remove every single instance of this happening on their platforms. It's
1: just such an extreme and rare thing that it's very difficult for any sort of technology other than basically saying when, when you see something, say something. And 23 minutes, I guess it's just a debate of whether that – is that a fast turnaround or a slow turnaround? Chris, before the podcast, you and I were talking about this is reminiscent of a 2015 killing where uh, two broadcast journalists, local news journalists, were killed on camera. Uh, and the murderer uh, shortly – who's a disgruntled former colleague of theirs uh, – shortly after posted video of it to Twitter and Facebook – And you and I were talking about how at the time there was a lot of debate about how long it took Twitter to to basically deactivate his account, turn off those videos. Um, Tell me a little bit about that time. I I remember that that first hour was a very kind of dramatic time of people saying, Twitter, you
4: need to do something about this. Right. It it was. And in fact, uh, while it didn't air live on those platforms, it did air live on WDBJ-TV because the reporter and the photographer were in the middle of a live shot on their morning show – and this suspect, Vester Flanagan, came up and shot them both as well as the woman that they were interviewing. Now she survived. He took off and then took those videos and, as we said, uploaded them to the to the social platforms while being on the run while being uh the subject of a manhunt uh, in this rural part of of uh, Virginia, so it brought up a lot of issues of um you know how long it takes for something like this to actually spread around the actual news event that actually occurred and covering that side of it. And then the the police operation of trying to, find this guy and prevent him from doing something more.
1: Yeah, obviously the burden on these technology companies is to, you know, not play a role where somehow they encourage people to keep doing this, you know, to keep using them as a forum for horrible things. It's something, you know, to Lauren's point that YouTube's been dealing with with ISIS and you don't want to become a forum for beheading videos and things like this. But I have to admit at some point I just really doubt that there's a lot they can do to to keep keep this all out together. But, you know, props to Facebook for uh, stepping forward on this and saying that they are addressing it. They are looking into the turnaround time. Uh, Obviously, 23 minutes probably felt like an eternity for the people who were seeing that video uh, on Facebook. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, hopefully this – these kinds of things don't keep coming up, but they certainly do ar- seem to arise enough that it keeps a conversation going within that industry. On, on a very different level, another uh, set of concerns that Facebook and also the other part of the duopoly of kind of digital advertising dollars is Google. And uh, we ran a story that Lauren wrote this week in our print edition about basically the concerns that marketers and agencies have with, uh, with this. Now, Lauren, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of this just stems from the fact that Facebook and Google combined control, what, 60% of the digital marketplace?
3: Yep, it's about 60%. And uh, a report from uh, a trade organization last year estimated that the two companies get about, got about 90% of new digital dollars. So Holy cow. significant to say the least.
1: <laughs> yeah. So at that point, when you're talking about a duopoly that controls so much of the advertising pot like that, you know, anything they do is going to be a major point of concern. But but what are the major issues that you found that marketers are having with these platforms? And are they shared issues or are they very specific to those, to each of the two?
3: They are shared shared issues. And it's interesting. They're, they're shared issues. However, Both companies um, have different ways of defining them, which just makes it more complicating. Uh, But a lot of it stems from, you know, a few years ago, the MRC rolled out this viewability standard that basically all digital publishers are now transacting on. It's the main form of uh, currency. If you go and buy an ad on a publisher's site, this is how you buy it, based on how long an ad is viewed on a, on a digital screen.
1: Basically, they didn't want one platform's counting a view as, you know, one second and another counting it as 15 seconds or, or what percent of an ad they made it through. It's a they standard. Were trying to, yeah, trying to standardize that.
3: So that's been in place for a couple years for most big publishers, uh, but Facebook and Google have not um played by those rules because they argue that their environments are different kinds of contexts, people use them differently. But I think you're seeing a within the past 6 months or so, a lot of pushback from brands saying, "Well, we do want to treat treat it the same. We understand that you know, your platforms are different, but it gives me as a marketer, no way to compare my Facebook ad versus my ad that's running on a Conde Nast property, or how it compare how a Facebook ad compares to a YouTube ad and vice versa. Uh, there's there's been a lot of push put back because these two companies control so much of digital spend about marketers wanting the exact basically if not on. Par with digital metrics than they're getting elsewhere, better.
1: Yeah, so I mean, how would you state the general contentedness of marketers with these two platforms? I mean, is there a lot of tension at the moment, or are they generally very happy with their options? It's just a matter of like when you're spending this many millions and billions of dollars, you know, you really want to fine tune it as much as possible. I mean, what's their kind of general take on these two platforms?
3: Well, I think from the brand and agency side, most brands and agencies don't feel like they're getting out. Um, nearly as much as they would like to. It, like I said, it, a lot of it comes down to the viewability uh, debate right now, but then you get into other more granular issues like conversions, attribution, reach. All of those stats are fairly like siloed to either Facebook or Google. You can't, if you run a campaign, uh, one brand explained it to me this way, when he runs a campaign on Facebook, or YouTube that tag that targets adventure travelers. Either one of the companies will come back and say it's all good. Here's the stats that prove that it did what you wanted it to do on our platform, but they're not able to take those ins- insights elsewhere. You know, they don't know how many people, they know how many people they reached on Facebook. They don't know how often that person saw the ad. If they saw ads elsewhere, there's just a lot of problems in being able to take either one of the platform's data elsewhere.
1: Now, Chris, I'm curious, you know, you, we were going into the upfront, the biggest uh, kind of ad pitch season for the TV industry. Uh, What, how do TV networks are they taking advantage of some of this confusion, chaos, differing standards on different digital platforms? Do they use that to kind of sell TV as a more premium ad buy? As a, I mean, are they taking advantage
4: of some of this? I think they have, and I think you're going to see it even more increasingly this year. They're going to say that marketers aren't as happy the last few years with um, some of their digital placements. Uh, and so come back to us. This is this is a sure thing. We're going to put you in front of 10 to 15 million people, and we know exactly when they're watching, and we know exactly who's watching. And that's really going to be the pitch this year.
1: Um, we're going to uh, move on to another digital topic, uh, Pandora. Uh, Pandora obviously has been kind of the pioneer of internet radio as we think of it now. Uh, the, the biggest difference between them and Spotify has been that Pandora, you just pick your station, you listen to it. If you like uh, Bob Marley, you're going to get songs that are like Bob Marley. Uh, what they have not had, and what they have not been able to keep up with, is the you know the the great shareability or customizability of something like Spotify, where you can build your own playlist, you can listen to the specific song you want, and uh, you know that's kind of been uh, a a defining factor of Pandora, but it's also been a bit of a holdup. And they're finally launching a uh, a new service that they're calling uh, Pandora Premium, which is a little confusing because they already had Pandora Plus, which I, I'm a paying member of. I use both Pandora and Spotify. Uh, this one will be a little bit more expensive. I think it's $10 a month instead of $5 a month for for Pandora Plus, which has just been the ad-free kind of internet radio option. Uh, but uh, $10 a month puts them on par with Spotify and Apple Music. I think if you're already a Pandora – uh, plus member, you get six months free, I think, of Pandora Premium to try it out. So there is some perk if you were already a paying customer. Tim, you wrote about the creative con- uh, campaign that the, the Digitas LBI has been doing to kind of uh, pitch this. Uh, tell us about what, what they're doing to advertise it. It's certainly not a very direct uh, ad campaign about you know, st- direct streaming.
0: Right. Sure. Well, it's actually, um, Digitas LBI did help with, uh, some of the production and some of the media strategy that the creative itself was actually done in-house at Pandora and, oh, okay. and it Let's follows, um, their rebrand last fall when they actually introduced, uh, the plus, uh, tier pricing last fall. So they've definitely speeded up their timeframe. You know, they, they, as you say they used to just basically be an internet radio and and you know they've fallen way behind Spotify and Apple Music in terms of paid subscribers and that's really what they're going for here um is to to come up with a service that uh that that is a paid a premium paid service that they can you know they can pull in $10 a month from people for uh people you know they can they can people can select the music they want to hear uh pull up specific tracks all the stuff that Spotify has been offering forever and Apple Music's been offering forever I mean, the thing about Pandora is it's got 80 million uh, monthly users, but only about 5 million paying users. You know, by contrast, um, Spotify's got 50 million paying users, and Apple Music, oh, wow. Apple Music's got more than 20 million. So clearly, Pandora, you know, finds itself—it was a pioneer in the space, but it finds itself really playing catch-up in the on-demand game. So what yeah what the ad campaign does it really focuses on um artists and it's primarily out of home and digital campaign and and the out of home ads are really cool they they're basically these uh photographs of artists kind of looking to the left and then to the right almost mirroring their face is is the letter P of uh of Pandora and the P is made up of um covers of albums that that influenced those artists and the artists were I think there's 18 artists involved in the campaign and they all picked you know, fifteen or twenty albums that influence them, and and that's what makes up the ads. And the out of home actually has snap codes on it where um, passersby can actually access uh, curated mixtapes by these by these artists just directly from the out of home using Snapchat code uh, snap codes. So that was pretty cool too. Uh, it's called you know, but they're also at the same time trying to uh, emphasize the personalization aspect, which I think you know pandora's always you know talked up its algorithm and how it really can lear- learns what you like you know better than almost anyone else and so they're really trying to push two different things here they're trying to push the on demand service but they're also trying to push the personalization kind of higher branding idea and uh you know it's tough i mean a lot of a lot of uh, the tech sites have written about you know what pandora premium is it doesn't sound like it's really that differentiated from the others to 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 get people to switch Um, But at the same time, there's an enormous number of people that that don't pay for any streaming music. So the the market is really just still in its early stages, I would say, even though the numbers sound big for Spotify and Apple Music. And, uh, you know, Pandora probably feels a little bit aggrieved that they, you know, they were such a pioneer in in internet radio, but they've, you know, uh, they haven't been able to monetize that as as much as they'd like in terms of on-demand stuff. So... Uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like
1: these ads are missing something to me, and and but it really may just be a better reflection of the service which I haven't used yet. Uh, but you know, the ads certainly don't scream, "Hey, now you can listen to the song you actually want to listen to." It's still about like, "Hey, if you like this artist, here's other music that inspires that artist or that they like." You know what I mean? It's, it's. I know what you mean. It's. Yeah, it's keeping with the Pandora kind of defining character, but at the same time, I worry that it's not quite direct enough. Like, if you told me, hey, now you can get the actual tracks you want to listen to on Pandora so your kids won't complain, uh, <laughs> right. you know, when they ask for a song, then I'd be like, oh, cool, okay, I'll, I'll give you a little yeah, extra money. And,
0: and, you know, I think uh, other things like it's not Alexa-compatible yet, There's certain things that are just going to be red flags. Um, but, you know, the, the the features that you talk about, they are going to be mentioned kind of further down the marketing funnel as opposed to these you know, the big out-of-home executions don't mention that, but it. But w- when they are targeting, particularly they're going to target pretty heavily their 80 million monthly users with ads that do say more like, hey, if you want to listen to a specific song, get Pandora Premium. So that messaging will be out there. It's just not in the... In the big sort of top level ads,
1: you know, it's interesting. You mean you mentioned Alexa? I have a Google Home. Uh, you know, I, I know Lauren that you've got a uh, Amazon Echo. I feel like it really has changed my use of streaming services. Like I use both Spotify and Pandora so much more now that I have a Google Home, kind of smack in the middle of my kitchen, and, and you know, we use it all the time for music streaming. Has it has it had a similar effect on you, Lauren?
3: Oh yeah, I use both of. Spotify and Pandora on my um, Echo. And I pay for Spotify and I don't pay for uh, Pandora. So I kind of use them interchangeably, I guess. But I think what I was going to say was I think it's interesting with Pandora making a big out-of-home push with this is that's kind of been Spotify's like go-to move over the past few years. And so it's hard to compare these billboards with something with Spotify's that have been so fun and clever and use data in interesting ways. Um, I spoke to Spotify's CMO, I don't know, a few weeks ago for a, a package in the magazine that we had about CMTOs. Uh, and he was really talking to the point about in order to get market share, what he's really been focused on it for the past few years and why Spotify now has 50 million paying subscribers is from, out-of-home, and these big brand-building campaigns. So it's just kind of interesting for me to think about that and what Pandora launched today.
1: Yeah, I mean, Spotify is one of the best – advertisers in America right now. You know, I really do think their they're out-of-home is is absolutely brilliant. I think their service is fantastic. They're a tough competitor. Um, but speaking of, uh, you know, legacy uh, uh, categories that, that have a disruptor, let's talk about booze and weed, because uh, marijuana is uh, obviously, as it's become more legal, there's been a lot of debate about the impact that's going to have on uh, the traditionally legal recreational uh, you know choice, which is alcohol, but either in the form of liquor store sale, you know, liquor Store sales or bar visits. And Foursquare, of all places, has come out with some interesting data on that. Foursquare has really been building building itself as a, a kind of a data... Uh, foot traffic kind of uh, clearinghouse of information because of obviously all the information they get from uh, mobile. And so they just uh, uh, rolled out some data on the effect that legal weed has had. Chris Heiney, our tech editor, uh, wrote about it uh, today on adweek.com. Uh, but basically, uh, they found that legal weed has not really hurt uh, nightlife and bars in Oregon. I guess the concern was that people would, um, you know, they would just stay home and smoke or they'd go to, you know, they, they wouldn't go out as much. Uh And I I can say sitting in a bar last night, there was no shortage of of marijuana. Uh, (laughs) People people are still finding plenty of time for that. Um, But uh, there were some interesting stats on there. So Foursquare showed that bar uh, bar foot traffic in Oregon, where it's been legal for about, I believe, about two years now, uh, went up 3%, which is on par with the national average. So basically, we didn't disrupt anything. Uh, liquor store sales grew. They, they only grew at half the national rate. Uh, so the, a lot of liquor store visits, uh, which I won't equate to the political season of 2016, but uh, there could be a tie in there. A lot more people buying booze nationwide last year. Uh, but uh, the pot didn't slow it down too much, apparently, in Oregon. And some interesting stats on the people actually going to the the, uh, marijuana dispensaries. Half of them were millennials. No real surprise there. It's uh, between, I think, 21 and 35. And uh, my favorite stat, 31% of dispensary visitors came from out of state. So if nothing else, it's a huge tourism boost. (laughs) They, you know and they're going to go out drinking that night while they're in town so probably probably a big impact on nightlife. Uh Chris, do you think that uh that there is going to be any disruption as we see legal marijuana coming in more, you know, is it going to have any sort of impact on alcohol on nightlife or do you think we'll just it'll just be part of the equation?
4: I think it's going to be just part of the equation at this point. I'd love to see some stats from Colorado. Um uh and everything I'm reading so far is that there's a lot of out-of-state coming in. Uh, and enjoying it, using it, but they're also home of coors and and mm-hmm. a lot of microbrews, and it'd be interesting to see if they take a hit at all uh, uh, in that state.
3: As someone from Denver, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have any hard stats on it, but I can say an, anecdotally, I feel like the inner the foursquare data isn't that surprising. It's the in the few years that it's been legal in Colorado it has been a big travel and and tourism boon and I feel like the two activities kind of go hand in hand and it's becoming more and more normal in Denver it's just it's just kind of the way things (laughs) are
1: all right well it is time for my favorite part of the show each week uh, where Tim Nutt our creative editor walks us through this week's ads worth watching all right, Tim, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, one of my favorite stunts of this past week, I, I, it is an ad, so uh, so we included it here, but uh, tell us what Burger King's been up to.
0: Yeah, I'm sure everyone's heard the story by now. Uh, Burger King and its agency, David, down in Miami, uh, created a, t- a TV commercial that was explicitly designed to set off people's uh, Google Home uh, voice-activated devices. So I it was last Wednesday, I think around noontime, they rolled out a spot uh, on YouTube uh, at first, with an actor playing a, a Burger King employee who says he's only got 15 seconds and he can't possibly talk about how great the Whopper is in, in such a short time. So so he's going to try this uh, experiment. So he walks up to the camera and he says, okay, Google, what is the Whopper burger? And this caused people's Google homes, uh, of course, to spring to life and and uh, read the first sentence of the Whopper Wikipedia page. So maybe we could just listen briefly to a
4: clip of, of, of what that spot sounded like. You're watching a 15 second Burger King ad, which is unfortunately not enough time to explain all the fresh ingredients in the Whopper sandwich, but I got an idea. Okay Google, what is the Whopper burger?
0: So this was pretty polarizing, I know David, you loved this. Um, It it definitely, reaction to it though was was really mixed, a lot of people weren't happy about it. Some people immediately went into Whopper's Wikipedia page and and edited it uh, in unpleasant ways. Uh, and Google also uh, itself wasn 't too pleased about it um, a couple It only took a couple of hours for for Google to kind of to, you know tell its google homes to to recognize this ad and, and stop responding to it um, but the interesting thing was that Burger King was actually ready for that i 'm sure they anticipated that uh, and uh, the ad rolled out on YouTube sort of during the day on Wednesday and they, they had planned on airing it on the some of the late night shows and broadcast on Wednesday night. And they did, but in, in in the they aired a new version that had a slightly different voice saying "Okay, Google, what is the Whopper burger?" Um, which Google Homes apparently didn't recognize, and so they, you know, the ad that the ad that actually aired on TV did trigger the Google Homes. So I don't know. The whole thing was pretty subversive, and and um, it's pretty fascinating to see this big brand, you know, not only hijacking another brand's device and, and kind of invading people's homes with this marketing message, but then also to be ready you know, to know that Google's not going to like it and to have another spot ready to go. I mean, the whole thing was pretty, I don't know, dastardly. I don't know. But David, David, you loved it, though.
1: Well, I mean, I, I love any time you get a smart hack because this is the kind of thing where Google and Amazon, they will find a workaround for this very quickly uh, to try to keep – because this is not the first time anything that has happened like this. Uh, Chris, remind me, we had a local news station in San Diego, I believe, right, that uh, that had a similar run-in with this. Yeah, and
4: Amazon uh, – it was the Amazon Echo device. Um, they came out later and said, no, that really didn't trigger our device uh, uh buy. It was a child. Um, The TV anchor said something, and it supposedly triggered the device, which then ordered through Amazon a a child's dollhouses. dollhouses. Yes, that's right. Um, And Amazon said, well, we didn't really get that many orders. It was a little bit blown out of proportion. But I think this Burger King thing, uh, as Tim said, the fact that they were so ready to be prepared for what Google was going to do, but maybe not so prepared for what people at home were going to do in updating the Wikipedia page, and then... You know, saying that the Whopper is made with children, or that uh, it's made with cyanide and things like that. And so, who wins here? Did Burger King really win? Um, Yeah, that's a good question.
0: I I mean, it definitely rode that line between being clever and being kind of aggressive and weird, and, and, and you know, invasive. I think I think as a one time stunt, you know, that's that's Burger King probably does get a win on this just because of all the attention it got. Uh, obviously, the the person you know, the brand that does this first kind of gets the attention. If other if other brands tried to do it now, people would be like, "Knock it off! It's irritating."
1: Yeah, that's my point. Is that I I love these kinds of hacks because they only work once. You know that not just technically, but socially. Right. You know, after you've done it once, people are like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we get it." Um, right. But it, yeah, as Chris mentioned, my favorite was the Wikipedia edit that said that it was made with one hundred percent medium sized child. <laughs>
0: And cyanide, but of course Burger <laughs> King to... was expecting that too. I'm sure you know, and, and, oh, and they—it's one of those things where they knew some people would get angry. They—they they probably knew people would hack the page, and they take all those risks into account, and they still decide it's a good thing to do. So, yeah, certainly, my, my... certainly interesting.
3: Didn't Amazon do it first this year, though? I know I was watching the Super Bowl at home, and they had that Echo ad, and my my Echo came on full full volume <laughs> in the middle of the game. Uh, which I think they've also gotten a little bit of heat about because some people thought, thought it was a little disruptive. Obviously, it's they're plugging their own product, so I feel like it's a little bit different than a brand trying to hack a thing, but still, it's, right. it's unnerving when did it a, happens. Did you
4: get a dollhouse delivered to your house?
3: No, I did not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Jimmy Fallon's also been doing it kind of as a, a gag, I think, on his show. He's been making people's echoes go off. So it's definitely been around. I think it's BK kind of hooking into something that's definitely existed.
1: Yeah, I mean, pranking and pranking other people's devices, obviously, has just been a great... Like, every time I walk through my parents' kitchen, I say, okay, Google, uh, play Skrillex. (laughs) And then I just walk out of the room, and my dad keeps coming in. It's like, what What is it doing? I told it to play jazz. (laughs) But uh, anyway, my personal favorite part of this ad, by the way, is the fact that the guy is holding the burger in, like, the most unnatural like every time I look at it I can't get over the fact he's holding it like a platter <laughs> and and he looks like Bob's big boy you know like the old statue of like the dude holding it. it's just something so it's so 100% advertising no one would ever in a million years hold a burger like that but that's funny anyway. All right. Uh, what else you got? For well,
0: us? so this is also kind of related in a weird way. Like um, this morning, we're recording this on Tuesday. So Tuesday morning this week, uh, McDonald's rolled out its own campaign that kind of has a, a Google tie-in. This time it was actually an authorized tie-in with Google. Um, so it's a new campaign from McDonald's new agency, relatively new agency, uh, the Omnicom agency called We Are Unlimited. And they got uh, Mindy Kaling to star in some some new TV commercials. Uh, but the hook here is that uh, Mindy doesn't actually mention the name McDonald's. Um, so there's no McDonald's branding really on it except for the colors. She's actually wearing like a yellow dress and there's a, a red background. So it's definitely got McDonald's branded colors in there. But in the commercial, uh, and we can listen to it, Mindy basically tells, tells viewers to, uh, to Google that place where Coke tastes so good. Maybe So let's, let's play a clip of it here.
2: According to some, there's a place where Coca-Cola tastes like so good. Go ahead, do a Google search for that place where Coke tastes so good. Yeah, right now. I'll wait.
0: So, yeah, if you actually go uh, and Google that line, um, that place where Coke tastes so good, you do get all these search results about McDonald's. Apparently, McDonald's does, does handle um, Coca-Cola in a certain way, the way that it, it gets shipped in. Or, I'm not exactly sure, but there's been articles written about how great Coca-Cola tastes at McDonald's, specifically over the years. So, basically, you know, we are unlimited, decided to lean into this... Um, existing search results and and kind of get away from the hard brand sell obviously taking the brand out completely is kind of an interesting an interesting move and there's a you know there's a few different things going on here i think the lack of the mcdonald's branding in the ad is kind of a pr hook uh it's also kind of a nod to people you know young people who don't want to be explicit explicitly marketed to Um, And then there's this, you know, it is very, a very data driven campaign. And this is something that we are unlimited, you know, has has been saying they're going to do all along is kind of lean into a a ton of data and try to, and try to build their campaigns around that. Um, You know, it literally, first of all, literally asks the viewer to go find some data about McDonald's on their own. Um, But at the same time, it's also informed by data. About millennial habits, which is that you know not exactly earth-shattering, but it's still true that this insight that young viewers typically are playing on their phones while watching TV, and they they can actually go ahead and Google you know a sentence if they want to. So, and then finally, you know, the final layer is that the spots do communicate that Coke tastes great at McDonald's. So you know, it's a pretty sophisticated kind of multi-layered campaign. Um, It definitely shows where we are. Unlimited is heading with their work. This is kind of their first big, big effort for McDonald's. and I don't know. It's, it's kind of cool. And at the same time, though, it, you know, almost as insurance, it uses the more traditional format of the celebrity endorsement as kind of the underpinning of this. So it's it's new and it's not, and it's it's certainly interesting. And, and, and Google was involved, as I said, they um, they certainly didn't muck around with the search results for that phrase, but um, they are helping McDonald's learn um, who's coming to the, to those search results from the TV spots. So they are kind of mining the uh, the data that's coming in as a result of this campaign. And uh, it's officially endorsed by Google, unlike the BK stuff.
1: Well, the, uh, sp- not to spoil any Google searches, but apparently the answer is that they uh, ship their Coke in stainless steel containers to preserve flavor, and they use wider straws. Oh, there you
0: go. Okay. So there you go. The funny thing about this campaign is it's, it's somewhat self-defeating because... Very, very quickly, um, Google search results for that place where Coke tastes so good uh, is starting to bring up stories about this marketing campaign versus the actual reason why t- Coke tastes so good. You know yeah. what I
4: mean? So it, I actually saw a version of this on TV last night, and I thought Mindy Kaling was doing Coca-Cola ads.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I,
4: I, I actually didn't do the, the next step in search, um, and search right, and find out that it was for McDonald's. But now that you mentioned the red background, it all makes sense.
0: So it's yeah, interesting, yeah. So it's a, I mm-hmm. mean, it's definitely a risk, right? If you if you're airing a national TV spot and people come away with it not knowing that your brand did it, I mean, that's a big deal. And
1: uh, what was the uh, last ad you wanted to talk about today?
0: Oh, sure. Um, yeah, it's this ad for Spectrum. It's really kind of a goofy uh, a goofy spot, but I thought I thought it was really fun. Uh, Spectrum is the cable company, the Charter Charter Communications cable brand, and they did a spot from a Brooklyn agency called Something Different. Uh, and it's just a funny idea. It's basically um, it's it's set on a on a commuter train, and there's all these kind of evil, evil villain um, monsters. Like there's an evil professor, there's a mummy, there's a werewolf, there's the grim reaper. Um, they're all sitting around talking to each other about how evil satellite TV companies are which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, it was directed by David Shane. Let's listen to a brief clip of this one too. What are we all doing this weekend? Uh,
3: I'm still working on that
4: death ray. Uh, still, you know, it's not easy. You gotta find a mountain, you gotta get permits. And... Well, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Right. What about you? Uh, you know, just a lot of howling. You know, I like mm. to just howl, you know, just a little bit of me time. You? Uh, I'll be summoning the apocalypse. Oh, oh and the twins have soccer. Oh. <laughs> I'm bringing the orange slices this week.
0: So yeah, I mean, David Shane is the director here, and he did um, HBO's Awkward Family Viewing from a couple years ago. He also did the famous Bud Light swear jar ad, and he's just a, he's a great comedic director. And I thought this ad was just really kind of clever idea to have all these evil people talking about how you know how the thing that's even more evil than they are is is, is satellite TV. And uh, it was just—I thought it was really well done.
1: Well, great. Well, thank you as always for wrapping up the ads worth watching. Uh, that was a good good uh, interactive mix this week and we'll be interested to see how brands continue hacking uh, some of these devices and search and i I definitely think it's going to be one of the trends of 2017 Uh, so something we'll certainly be keeping an eye on Uh, as always i would encourage you to check out adweek.com's creativity section which tim oversees and our ad freak blog uh, where we keep it stocked every day with all sorts of great uh, content like this and now it's time to move on to our big discussion of the week (laughs) All right. So this week in our print magazine uh, is our TV upfront. Preview uh, First, I want to start out. So the upfront is basically one of the biggest advertising events or time periods of the year. Uh, but for people outside of the industry, it is somewhat inscrutable. And they may wonder why there's are suddenly uh, network ads popping up all over Times Square that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, Chris, you are our upfront guru. Tell us, what is the
4: upfront? So the upfront, historically, uh, it's a, a week in mid-May when all the television networks, after they've bu- uh, been through uh, pilot season, uh, tried out all their new shows and they have these star studded events, two to three hours long, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, and they, uh, bring ad buyers in and marketers in and they hope that all of these people are interested in what they're trying to sell. And then the upfront selling season begins. So they introduce their new shows and the selling season goes into May, June, July. And by then hopefully they have everything sealed for the next fall season. Well, it's gotten a little more crowded, uh, of late, uh, Five years ago or so, the IAB introduced the new fronts, which are now the prior two weeks before the upfronts, where smaller digital media companies that uh, produce a lot of video are also looking for a bit of that advertising pie. And then you've got all the cable networks, A&E, AMC, Discovery, they've all had their upfront presentations already. Crown Media, which is Hallmark Channel, uh, and the Spanish language networks as well. Univision 8, Azteca, and, and Telemundo as well. So it's a very crowded time period of about seven or eight weeks now, and it's all about bringing marketers into the fold and ad buyers into the fold to sponsor everything we watch on TV. And not everybody likes doing this dog and pony show, right? There are uh, uh, some networks
1: that just want to have more private. They they call it their upfront, but they actually go to you as the media buyer and they present, like, so they do 100 presentations instead of one gigantic one, right?
4: Essentially, yes, uh, exactly. That's what Viacom is doing this year. Um, they're going to uh, have meetings with their new CEO, Bob Backish, uh, individually. Um, Meanwhile, A&E and AMC the past couple of years had had scaled down events and they decided, well, because it is such a crowded time period, we do want to have a splashy event. So they went back to having the bigger event, the two-hour event with music and and their stars trotted out and uh, meeting with the different ad buyers as well as the press that are covering all these different events. Now, in the uh, new fronts on the digital
1: side, I know YouTube is kind of most famous for having one of the craziest events every year. Who is the TV equivalent? Who has like the craziest upfront presentation?
4: NBC Universal's was probably uh, the biggest last year. And what they did is they combined now they have so many networks between um, on the Spanish language side, Telemundo, of course, the NBC television network. Uh, the News Network, MSNBC, Bravo USA, um, they put it all into one big event. Um, some critics said that was too crowded. I don't know what is going on. They had Mariah Carey it out because she had a show <laughs> on Oxygen with Jennifer Lopez sitting in the audience. And then she came out with because she's got her show on NBC. Some people said it was a little too crowded. I enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a great event at, at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, and you know we got lots of stories out of it as well because it's such a wide ranging network. So I would say that's the biggest of the events. Um, and Brandcast, uh, you're talking about YouTube. That's that's what they call their event uh, during the New Fronts. That it's also, I mean, Lauren, you can talk a little bit about this. You've attended the past couple of years. Um, you know, they get out the big stars, the big influencers, and then they usually put on a. a, a you know, who did they have a couple of years ago? It was- so
3: Lily, well, it's like it's usually their cre- creators who host. Um, at least a majority of the presentation. I think last year was Lily Singh, and the year before that was maybe Grace Helbig. I'd have yes. to go back and double yep. check on that. Yeah. But they usually have their own like crop of talent. Yeah, like the John to, the John
4: Greens or the John, Green, John Green was and, there a yep.
3: couple years ago. Yeah.
4: yeah. So that's the two full weeks before uh, the upfronts, and there's usually two to three events per day. Uh, during those first two weeks of May. So it's a, it's a crowded time for for buyers, uh, for all of these networks and, and all the press that cover them.
1: Now, let's talk about our cover story this week was about uh, the new president of MTV. Uh, tell us, uh, so his name is Chris McCarthy. Tell us about Chris's kind of background. He's got uh, an interesting pedigree from the last few years.
4: Yeah, so he's actually has an engineering undergraduate degree and then went to Wharton for his MBA. And when he joined MTV about uh, 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, he hesitated telling people that he had an engineering degree because he thought it was a stigma that it would be attached to him, and he wasn't a true TV guy. Uh, well, he worked his way up at MTV, had a bunch of different jobs from running MTV Digital. Uh, it, they, they named him president of, of VH1 and Logo. And then a few months after that, also gave him the reins at MTV. So that's really what our cover story is about, is how he, being the third president of MTV in about 13 months, is really trying to reinvent that network.
1: And he had tremendous luck at VH1 and Logo. I mean,
4: like He left behind a pretty good string of successes, right? He did, and um, as he was going out the door, he decided to take Logo's biggest hit and put it on VH1. Um, So he's he's got his work cut out for him then. Uh, Now, uh, going forward, um, as uh, Jason Lynch writes in his cover story, um, they're going to return to a lot of live programming. They're going to introduce a television category to the MTV Movie Awards with 435 or so scripted television shows. There's certainly no lack of um, television to be talking about. Um and they're doubling the size of their studio here in Times Square, which was home for to home to a TRL total request live for many years and they're going to bring back an, an iteration of that, which that's also going to be a challenge. Um, you know, for years, network uh, ad chiefs have been saying the schedule is dead. No one sits down and watches TV at a particular time. So what MTV is doing is is asking uh, millennials of all people to sit down at a certain time every day but, you know, The other thing that um, has proven true over the past few years is that live events do work. The Super Bowl, the Grammys, the Oscars, the Emmy Awards, any award show will do well if you draw people into a certain time. Can you do it five days a week, late in the afternoon? That's yet to be seen. So one of the most
1: fascinating things about MTV is how it has constantly been changing, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And it, 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 but that's part of its DNA is that it's like always evolving. You know, so I was growing up at a time when MTV was kind of transitioning out of just here's a bunch of videos, twenty four hours a day, to here's programming where we block things off in interesting ways. Uh, you know, they had one hundred twenty minutes, and they had uh, what was the alternative one? Tim, do you remember that with Kennedy and all that?
0: Yeah, I can't remember.
1: <laughs> it's called, like, Alternative uh, something. 120 anyway, Minutes was pretty alternative. Yeah. Oh, 120 Minutes was fantastic, but it wasn't quite mainstream enough. And so I think as grunge really took off, uh, they, they really kind of leaned into into that in a smart way, Uh and uh, Yo MTV Raps, and they, they really found ways to start getting more thematic structure into programming. Then they kind of went overboard <laughs> and like went super programming heavy, where you couldn't even find videos if you wanted <laughs> right. to on MTV. Lauren, what was wh- what was MTV like when you were kind of in peak MTV watching age? Like, what 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 defined the network?
3: Oh, it was totally TRL. <laughs> I loved it. As did most of the people I. I- were my that were my friends and it was it's just like an it's an afternoon after school ritual you go home after school and watch uh blink 182 on T, tRL
0: you know it's funny too the uh tRL when, when i started working at Adweek, um we were in the we were in the viacom building we were up on the 12th floor at 1515 broadway and this was when tRL was at its height you know like uh the, the carson daily years and uh Every day at four o'clock, we'd we'd be sitting doing our work, and every day at four o'clock, there's sort of like this dull moan would come up, like it was a, it was the crowd cheering for the beginning of TRL on down on the street, and it was so hard to get in and out of the building, and we actually had a coworker who looked a bit like Christina Aguilera who would get accosted on a daily basis outside the building it was crazy.
1: Uh by the way, uh Alternative Nation is the show I was trying to remember that uh, that was on MTV from 1992 to 1997. That's like they solid that's my high school years that is like peak grunge. <laughs> like but uh, but so anyway, uh they've had a they had their Jersey Shore period. They really leaned into reality TV. And then what happened after that? It feels like they've kind of been in a, a no-man's land for the last few years, Chris.
4: Yeah. Well, these reality shows um, are two- and three-year hits, and you need to create a new one um, to keep people engaged. And that, that has been a struggle for for a lot of networks, uh, bravo notwithstanding with, with their Real Housewives franchise. Um, but they also went into scripted TV, and I think that's when they decided – there is enough scripted television on the air that MTV doesn't need to be another place for that. So I think that is part of what Chris McCarthy is trying to do and return it to its roots of true music television, of live programming, uh, of, of really engaging music television. Um, so that's what he's going to be doing. Yeah. I forgot about the scripted TV. They had Teen Wolf, right? They did, one, one of which big- was actually did pretty well for them. Um, and I don't think that they're going to completely run away from it. Um, but for now, this is the strategy.
1: It's kind of a, it's interesting. It definitely feels like they're cherry picking some of kind of the best of their tactics from different eras. You know, going back to live, bringing back awards, which again in the '90s, the MTV Awards was still a big deal. Uh, you know, the movie awards, and I think it, to your point, it's very smart to roll TV into that because there's just so much TV content. And TV's kind of become the new movies in terms of quality, scope, budget. Uh, so, so that's pretty smart. Are there any other networks uh, going into this upfront? We've talked a lot about MTV. Well, I guess let's take a step back and talk about Viacom, like their parent company. What was their scenario in 2016? We kept calling it chaotic. I think with the lead of our one of our stories this week says to call it chaotic is an understatement. What the hell was happening in 2016 with Viacom?
4: Well, there was a lot of internal politics with the, the family that runs uh, the, the parent company of Viacom, the Redstone family. Um, there was a lot of drama involved, and it got too a point where uh, essentially they were going to remerge CBS and Viacom, which had been split apart and became two publicly traded companies, um, though still run by the Redstone family uh, some years ago. So that all w- was, was ready to be done. Les Moonves, who's the chairman and CEO of CBS, was not a big fan of it, but he was going to be the person who was going to be in charge of both networks. It didn't happen. And it may be because Les Moonves said, this is probably not the best thing for CBS it might be best for Viacom to go its own way. And so it is. And so they had a uh, temporary CEO, and now they have a full-time CEO and Bob Backish, who is also a part of our, our cover story this week. Um, and he talks about what his strategy is for for the larger Viacom products. And he's got what he's calling the, the, the big six networks. And they are Nick, Nickelodeon, Nick Jr., Comedy Central, MTV, uh, BET, and what's gonna be called Paramount Network, which isn't on the air yet because right now it's known as Spike. It's going to be rebranded Paramount, which is, of course, is a legacy brand of the Viacom family, Paramount Pictures, Paramount Television, etc. So that's going to be rebranded later this year, uh, early next. And uh, that's his strategy of making those big six networks, the ones that um, are in the zeitgeist are talked about and the ones that the, the, the marketers and um, ad buyers are, are most aware of. So that leaves some popular ones like TV Land, sort of outside and even VH1 outside and Logo. Um, they're not going away, but they're not part of their big six. What, what, how do you think the
1: marketplace is going to react to that? I mean, do they feel, is there just a general sense of stability this year that you know that, that you can invest your money a little more
4: wisely in Viacom? Or, I mean, what, how do you think that's going to be received? I think it's brilliant, frankly, because there is a lot of clutter out there. And when you look at these big holding companies, these big television networks that have multiple networks, some of which are going away, Esquire, which was one of the NBCU networks, part of uh, uh, Hearst, That's going away. Uh, One of their smaller networks, uh, Clue, I believe it is, is going away. So if you can concentrate on um, a handful, if it's six in the case of Viacom, that's a smart move to make. doesn't mean those other networks aren't going to have viewers or have uh, brand sponsorships. But if you can focus on the ones that really matter and going forward – uh, it's a smart move. That's yeah, something we see with a lot of these media companies, whether
1: it's Condé Nast or whoever. At some point, you have to pick you know, which entities you're going to really focus your efforts on. Um, well, uh, thanks so much for that roundup, and definitely check out Adweek.com. we got a lot of coverage of the upfront. We're going to have a lot more as we get into new front season, upfront season. Uh, it's just going to be poor, poor Chris and his team and the digital team, Lauren, and everybody else. there are going to be running around like crazy making sure we attend uh, every single one of these that we possibly can. So keep an eye on Adweek.com. And uh, don't forget, you can drop us an email if you have any questions, whether it's about uh, the upfronts, the new fronts, about anything uh, going on in the advertising world, uh, what you would like us to be yelling into our Google Home or Alexa devices. uh, Drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We love giving your questions. Let us know if you would like us to read it on the air. Uh, coming soon, we got a lot of big packages. This is a very busy season for us uh, in, the, in the advertising world. Uh, we've got our Media All-Stars package coming up, our Graduates' Guide to Marketing and Media on Adweek.com coming up soon uh, to, in time with the graduation season. Uh, our MarTech superstars, so kind of the leaders in the emerging uh, marketing technology space. And so much more, lots and lots of new fronts coverage and upfront coverage. Uh, and then uh, next thing we know, we'll blink and it'll be the Can Lions uh, in June. So uh, definitely uh, keep an eye on Adweek com our theme music is by home this week's episode was produced by christina monlos and uh, please take a moment if you have not already to leave a review for us on itunes google players stitcher wherever you get your podcast uh, and uh, those reviews mean a lot to us and they help uh, new listeners discover the show thank you chris thank you lauren thank you tim uh, for joining us and we will talk to you next week